Uh, Eric Garner, if you don't know, was an African-American uh, from Staten Island, New York. He was basically standing outside a convenience store in, on July 17th, 2014. So tomorrow will be five years. When police approached him, they said he was selling cigarettes, untaxed, untaxed cigarettes. For that, apparently, they needed a crew of five to six police officers to bring this larger uh, individual down. Uh, he screamed, I can't breathe, 11 times as New York City police officer Daniel Pantaleo choked him to death. Uh, and the autopsy said that the, all the other, while Pantaleo was doing an illegal choke code that was for, forbidden uh, from being used for two decades in the NYPD, he was not allowed to use that choke code. The other officer's weight on Garner's chest induced a life-ending uh, asthma attack. So uh, to this morning, we got the terrible, horrific, but not surprising news, if you're a black person in this country. Uh, tomorrow was supposed to be the five-year statute of limitations for federal charges to be brought. And here we have the Justice Department will not bring federal charges against any police officers involved in the death of Eric Garner, 43-year-old black man who was recorded, whose recorded takedown in New York in 2014 helped coin a rallying cry for those concerned about law enforcement's treatment of minorities, two people familiar with the matter said, to be clear, this is Attorney General Bill Barr's decision not to charge. Um, let's show you uh, some of what Eric Garner's mother and uh, daughter had to say at the news conference today outside uh, the attorney, uh, the department, I think the district attorney's office uh, in Brooklyn, New York. We have been on the forefront. We have followed it up. We had to go, we had to fight. This is not an easy fight, but we kept on pushing. And make no mistake about it, we're gonna still push. You can push back, but we're pushing forward because this is not the end. And we're asking the commissioner to make the right decision. That officer, Officer Pandaleo, and all the officers who was involved in my son's death that day need to be off the force. The streets of New York City is not safe with them walking around. Five years ago, it was me. It was my family. Today or tomorrow, it could be your family. You are New York City residents. You're not infallible. You must remember that. But you know, I take it to God. I think he sits high and he looks low. We may not never know justice in the, in the DOJ, but I think that there will be justice and we're going to keep fighting and we're going to keep fighting. We're not going away. So you can forget that. You think it's swept under the rug? No, it's not going to be swept under the rug because I'm out here. You all know my face and you're going to see it even more now because this is an outrage, an insult to injury. You killed my son and you won't get away with it. I stood quietly by for five years. I'm not being quiet anymore. And I asked all the supporters to support me. Thank you. And Eric Garner's, uh, if you recall, his daughter Erica had protested for him uh, day, uh, Tuesday and Thursday for years, protesting for her father. She died of a heart attack years ago. So the Garner family has been hit with just one after the other, after the other, uh, devastating tragedy. Uh, and they have received no justice. 
And here is his other daughter um, today with a really, really infuriating but uh, just response to these to Officer Pantaleo facing no charges at all. I am very angry. I stand here in the spirit of my sister who fought for justice until her dying day for my father, standing outside protesting. She called the CCRB to do this investigation, and they didn't do their job. We called the Department of Justice. They didn't do their job. So no, I'm going to stand outside and I'm going to scream it. Pantaleo needs to be fired. He needs to be fired. There is no waiting. There is no nothing. The statute of limitation is tomorrow. Eric died 7 14 We're 7 19 Five years later and there's still no justice. So no, there won't be no calm. No, there won't be no peace. No justice, no peace. I'm here for Alyssa, I'm here for Kaylee, and I'm here for EJ. They have to watch their, their grandfather be killed on TV every time the news comes on. They have to watch as we go through this and we are emotional because we have to be strong for these children. So no, we will not rest. No, we will not be calm. De Blasio, what's up? When are you going to fire this officer? You have the evidence. You have the evidence. And more than, more evidence than we ever knew got released in the trial. A lot of information that we didn't even know was released in the trial. So where's the justice? Don't apologize to me. Fire the officer. Don't give me your condolences. I heard that five years ago. We want justice and we want it today. By five o'clock, they should be letting us know something. Something. Because coming in here, bringing us here in a roundtable talk, just to say, after you already released your decision that you're, uh, you're, you apologize, your condolences, no, no. We've been quiet for way too long. My sister died fighting for justice. You won't kill me. You won't kill me. That's it. I also want to show you uh, the lawyer for the family because he made a point today uh, that the statute of limitations, they've been talking about a statute of limitations for a while, uh, is not out. There is no statute of limitations for federal civil rights charges. So let me get you the lawyer. You know, they were telling us that the statute of limitations run out tomorrow. But as I know the law book, there's no statute of liberty, a statute of limitations for murder. Am I right or wrong? There's no statute of limitations. And that was murder that they did to my son. Just a minute. Attorney Jonathan Moore can address the legal part of the meeting. I think the uh, failure of five attorney generals and three U.S. attorneys in the Eastern District to bring a case uh, for the death of Eric Garner is a shame. It's a national disgrace. And it's, a, it's an issue of national importance. And everybody running for president should have to take a position on whether that's a just result in this case. All those Democrats, all the Republicans, they should have to take a position. Because this case is not dead. Under the federal civil rights laws, there is no statute of limitation for a conspiracy to violate somebody's civil rights that lead, that results in a death, or a deprivation of rights under color of law that results in death. 18 U.S.C. 241, 18 U.S.C. 242. Look it up. This case is not over. And the next president and the next attorney general will be presented with these same set of facts, and we hope that they do the right thing. 
because we will not rest until there's justice for Eric Garner and his family. I am trying to get in contact with him to explain uh, to me and you. Uh, and remember, for all 245 of you watching right now, I need you all, press that like button. The more people that press the thumbs up, the more people that will see this live stream. The corporate media is not going to be covering Eric Garner and this outrageous lack of justice. It's not shocking that there's no justice, but the lack of coverage only perpetuates the lack of action by prosecutors all over this country against white police officers that are murdering unarmed black men. In this case, somebody just standing on a street corner. What's amazing to me about this, what's amazing to me about this is the, the, the theory and the rationalization for why they're not charging this guy is this. The senior Justice Department official said that the chokehold lasted about seven seconds. Not enough time in the minds of some prosecutors to establish that the officer struggling with Garner intended to cause him harm. The prosecutors deci decided that they could not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that what Pantaleo did wasn't a mistake or poor judgment that did not rise to the level of a conscious decision to choke Garner, the senior official said. So let me get this straight. They clock Daniel Pantaleo as choking Eric Garner for seven seconds. I'm not sure if that's true. Uh, when I watched the video, it looked a lot more than seven seconds. So they're saying that seven seconds isn't long enough while somebody during those seconds is screaming, I cannot breathe. You cannot deduce whether this officer is intending to bring harm to this gentleman. Why did he need to do a chokehold in the first place? What was this? What was the threat of Eric Garner? Was the officer facing a threat that he had to choke him out? Why was there five to six police officers required to approach this unarmed man? Why are we losing sight of the fact that that was an illegal chokehold? That if you read the New York City Police Department's manual has been outlawed for two decades. Would nine seconds do the trick as opposed to seven seconds? And let's be real. This is a disgrace on both ends. Eric Holder could have brought charges against Daniel Pantaleo. He was the attorney general under Obama. Loretta Lynch could have brought charges against Daniel Pantaleo, attorney general under Obama. Same one, by the way, Loretta Lynch, who was working with North Dakota police to basically brutalize and shoot Native Americans in the head while they were protesting a pipeline being rammed through their land. So America, this is how we protect people. Obviously, you know, you don't expect Jeff Sessions was going to do anything, nor do you expect Bill Barr was going to do anything. It's obscene. Can you imagine for a second, if it wasn't a cop, if it was not a cop, and it was just me strangling somebody for seven seconds, you think I'd get the benefit of the doubt? Oh, we don't know if he was had the intent to harm him, he might have just been defending himself against, you know, well, actually on tape, he confronted the guy, so I don't know. 
And also, uh, I'm going to show you some of the uh, video. I, I went to Brooklyn yesterday to cover a protest. Um, Devis, I mean, if, if you don't have some Kleenex next to you or some tissues, Kleenex. If you don't have some tissues next to you, I, I recommend getting some or don't watch. So, you know, what did this guy think was going to happen if you're choking a very large man for seven seconds? Again, I can't confirm it was seven seconds. With four or five other police officers pressing him down on his, on his chest. And more importantly, if you say, oh, we, we don't have enough evidence to prove intent. Okay, it's gross negligence. It's not following your training. It is reckless behavior as a police officer, and this officer should have, been, should have been fired within several days once it was looked at. But in this country, we have an occupying force as the police. It's a militarized police, and I've seen it. And, you know, some of you might be your little Blue Lives Matter people. I know some kids I went to high school with that are police officers. They seem like good guys. I'm sure not, not every police officer goes into work saying, which black guy can I kill today? But that's not how systematic, systematic racism works. It's not always conscious. Usually it's not conscious. But if you are trained, and they are trained, thank you, Jose, in the super chat, $2 in the super chat, this is a super chat. If you are trained to fear black men, if you are trained to feel you need backup to approach an uh, overweight black guy on the, on the corner. If you are trained to think uh, they're up to no good, then you're going to make some really, really, really bad decisions that end up in murdering innocent people. It's a total crack of that Bill Barr and the Attorney General's office decided well, we can't decipher with seven seconds of choking him while he was chanting, I can't breathe. You know, if you're, if somebody's screaming, I can't breathe, and you're a police officer, isn't it your responsibility to let up a little bit or to, to release and find another way? They had no evidence that he had a gun. He faced no threat to them. You saw the video. And frankly, I thought Mayor de Blasio's statement in response to this was weak sauce. De Blasio, with the fifth anniversary of the tragic death of Eric Garner less than 24 hours away, federal law enforcement agencies have just announced they will not pursue charges against Officer Pantaleo. Years ago, we put our faith in the federal government to act. We won't make that mistake again. New York City is not the same city it was five years ago. We are a different city and we must act, act like it's a different city. Moving forward, we will not wait for the federal government to commence our own disciplinary proceedings. Reforms over the last five years have improved relations between our police, blah, 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 blah. I'm not reading the rest. Bottom line, Bill, you have, you have the federal response or lack of response. So I don't exactly know why you're making a statement about this. Either fire this police officer and make an example, fire him without him having a pension, or go back to being the fake progressive. Can't be both. It's within Bill de Blasio, the New York City mayor's power to fire this police officer. Why he's waited so long, 
he could only tell you. Yes, he will have the full force of the New York Police Department and their union and all the Blue Lives Matter people going after him if he fires this police officer. But leadership is about most, in leadership, most of the right things are the hardest things. The right things are never the easy things in politics. It takes courage. And you need, this is not just about New York City. You can make a decision that sets an example for the rest of this country. If the, poli if the federal authorities and the grand jury is not going to do the common sense thing that was right in front of their face, then you are the last resort. Shockingly, Bernie uh, did an interview with the Washington Post today, talk about going into the lion's den. So let me start it uh, showing you a little comical moment. Uh, here's the beginning of it. Bernie uh, pointing out the obvious uh, about who was sponsoring this event. Along the way, Senator Sanders has succeeded in making his priorities part of our national conversation, ranging from Medicare for all to regulatory reform of Wall Street. Since launching his 2016 bid for the presidency, the senator's message has encouraged new voters, particularly younger generations of voters, to participate in the electoral process, changing the nature of our political debate. This morning, we'll hear more from Senator Sanders about his domestic policy goals, his approach to the problems posed by Iran and North Korea, and his strategy for winning the Democratic nomination. We're looking forward to a lively discussion. Before we begin the program, I would like to thank our presenting sponsor, Bank of America. Now, please join me in welcoming Senator Bernie Sanders and The Washington Post's Robert Costa. Thanks, Senator Sanders, thanks so much for being here. Is Bank of America really sponsoring this? I <laughs> Well, let's okay. just get into the interview. <laughs> so there was Bernie uh, giving, it, giving it a little humor. Did Bank of America know who was speaking uh, this morning? And might as well, might as well call it Amazon Washington Post, because, I mean, they do more hit pieces on Bernie Sanders than anybody else. I mean, they got one columnist, Jennifer Rubin, who does about four, um, <laughs> four hit pieces a week. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. So uh, let me show you, I'm going to start with the part of the interview that I found to be finally Bernie going after Biden. Not as, not exactly as strong as I would like, but to me, this is, this is the key, key argument Bernie Sanders should be making against Joe Biden because he's not electable in the Midwest. He is not electable in those Midwest states. The corporate media could make it spin it that he's electable or that he's union Joe and all this nonsense. Eh, not so much. Here's Bernie Sanders answering a question on Joe Biden and trade. Uh, Joe Biden and trade. Here we go. Millions of good paying jobs leading the world in wind and solar and other sustainable technologies. You brought up China. If you were elected, would you keep the tariffs on China? No, if I were elected, we'd sit down and try to develop trade policies that work for the working people of this country and poor people around the world. It is no secret, and I say this as somebody who helped lead the effort against NAFTA, PNTR with China and other trade agreements, that these trade agreements were most often written behind closed doors by corporate leaders. 
And these corporate leaders were making money in this country, prepared to throw workers in this country out on the street because they make more money going to China or go to Mexico. Those are not the trade agreements that I support. Tariffs is one tool, but overall you need a trade, series of trade agreements that work for working people in this country. If there are corporations out there who are making money and they shut down in this country and they want to go abroad for cheap labor and then they line up at the trial for federal contracts, I would say, you know what, before you want the taxpayers to give you a contract, why don't you treat your workers with respect? And by the way, that has to do with health care benefits, that has to do with treating workers with dignity in this country, something that corporate America in many instances is not doing. We have a situation today where the CEOs of large corporations make 300 times more than their workers. We have to deal with that. We need, a corp we need to change the corporate culture in America, which is designed for short-term gains, and they are doing very well. Stock market is doing well. Dividends are very high. But maybe start paying attention to the working people of this country and not just to the stock market or dividends. Should Vice President Biden's support for NAFTA years ago give Democrats pause? Well, look. Yes uh, or no? I'll give you a not yes or no. Give me, give me two sentences, all right? All right? I think it'll be more than two sentences. It will be. All right. <laughs> He's a good reporter. He got it. All right. I mean, look, is Joe's record something that should be discussed? Is Bernie Sanders' record something that should be discussed? That is what a campaign is about. Do we, should we engage in mudslinging and, and uh, opposition It's a research? policy question. Of course it's a policy question. So the answer is yes, but it's not only that. Joe was a strong supporter of a NAFTA and PNTR with China. How is that going to play in the Midwest, which was decimated? In Michigan, Wisconsin, other states, which were decimated by these terrible trade agreements. Do I think that the workers in those states are going to feel very kindly to the guy who supported those agreements? But it's not just trade. Now, let me just briefly you know, talk about some of the differences between uh, Joe and myself. Uh, Joe voted for the war in Iraq. Uh, I did everything that I could. I not only voted against that war, I did everything that I could to see that we did not get into that war, which turned out to be the worst foreign policy blunder in the modern history uh, of this country. Joe voted for the deregulation of Wall Street. I helped lead the effort against that. That led, in my view, to the Wall Street collapse of 2008 uh, and the incredible pain that that caused for the American people. I voted against that bailout. If there was going to be a bailout, I wanted the billionaire class that helped cause the problem to pay for it, not working families. So, you know, the differences between Joe and me on foreign policy, on domestic policy, is pretty significant. More importantly, our vision for the future of this country is, is very different, and voters will end up uh, taking a look at our records, taking a look at our ideas for the future. They'll make their decision. What does that tell us about his judgment, especially that Iraq vote? Look, I don't want to, you know, psycho uh, psychoanalyze Joe and, and uh, determine you know, about his judgment. He was wrong. He was wrong big time. And go back to what I said on the floor of the House. I was a member of Congress about, you know, the destabilization that would occur in uh, the Mideast uh, as a result of that war. And by the way, right now, I am doing everything that I humanly can. I think I'll be in a press conference in a couple of hours. To do everything that we can to make sure the United States doesn't get involved in a war with Iran. Which, in my view, you can see how this stacks up five years from now, would be an even worse disaster than the war in Iraq. And I want to say something. I know I've been saying a lot. All right, so you want the good or the bad? 
The good or the bad? I'll start with the good. Finally, finally, uh, Bernie Sanders is, is speaking up to point out Joe Biden's record. The corporate media has been manufacturing consent and, and, and you know, extreme, you know, in 2016, it was extreme makeover Hillary Clinton. Now it's been extreme makeover Joe Biden and pushing this notion, this fairy, this fairy dust, fairy tale notion that he's more electable in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan. I got news for you. I was in Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, as well as Ohio, more than any other state covering uh, 2020, excuse me, 2016. Donald Trump did not win because of Vladimir Putin, didn't win because of James Comey. He had them at NAFTA. And if you look at the exit polls, the exit polls in all of those states, you know, voters tell you what the main issues were. The two top issues were trade and immigration. Trump was very successful at making those workers think their jobs and their plants closed because of Mexicans and, Me and Muslims. No, it was because of the corporations writing these trade deals. The corporations write the trade deals. Yes, cheap labor is going to Mexico and, and China, but you know you can't blame the workers there. It's, it's the government officials that are selling your jobs to the lowest bidder. It's not the workers' fault. You know, Bernie obviously didn't clobber him over the head. I would have preferred him to say, I would have preferred him to say, uh, yeah, his, his vision has been lacking. And, you know, Joe Biden uh, is doing fundraisers with Comcast lobbyists and Comcast is a union buster. And while he goes out, you know, talking about being union guy Joe, here's all the money he's taking from unions. And NAFTA just helped destroy unions. So would, T so would TPP, which Joe Biden still supports, which Joe Biden still supports. But the bottom line is this, Bernie, that message against Joe Biden on NAFTA and TPP. Remember, I, showed, I reported on this earlier. Joe Biden wrote in 2016 as vice president, he wrote cheeringly about the TPP, just like Hillary Clinton called it the gold standard. But Hillary Clinton called it the gold standard in 2011 while she was secretary of state. Joe Biden was writing glowingly about this in 2016 and he's still for TPP. And if he was president, he would definitely try to reignite TPP. Well, TPP, if, if NAFTA was the first wrecking ball to close down those factories in Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Illinois, many other states around this country, TPP will be the final one. You wanna talk about a jobless economy? If TPP comes to pass, forget it. And finally, Joe, finally Bernie Sanders is bringing up the things that he should have brought up in the debate. And he, I hope he brings up in the second debate. I think he could do it a little stronger, you know, when the reporter, who by the way, if you watch the full thing, uh, let me put the link in the live chat if you wanna watch the full thing. I heard some stuff, I heard some things from Bernie a little different than I've heard before, particularly on foreign policy. There's the link. But when the reporter says, is he lacking judgment? You know, maybe a stronger answer than, I don't wanna psychoanalyze him, this and that. Bernie. Enough with the niceties, okay? You're not, are you planning on going on vacation with Joe and Jill Biden after the campaign? Take the gloves off. Yes, he's lacking judgment. He's lacking judgment to lead. That's what you need to say. I'm not a campaign strategist, but that's what I would like. Anyway, uh, I wanna show another answer that I thought was really good and more specific, which frankly, he did not answer this the right way in the first debate or in interviews I've seen. So let's take a look at his answer on uh, Medicare for all.
stake in creating a system like Medicare for all through a bit of a higher tax rate? Well, how do you think health care is not free? Right now, we pay through, we pay for um, health care in a variety of ways. Pretty complicated. About half of health care dollars, more or less, comes from taxes. That's what Medicare is about, what Medicaid is about, uh, what the CHIP program is about, what the Veterans Administration is about. So you really spend a lot of money on that. The other way we pay for it, we don't call it taxes, we call it premiums. We call it out-of-pocket expenses. Increasingly in this country, people have higher and higher deductibles and higher and higher co-payments. That's how they are paying for health care. So what we're saying is, when you walk into a doctor and hospital, there is not going to be any premium, no co-payment, no deductible. You're going to long-term health care as well. We're going to expand Medicare to cover dental care, hearing aids, and eyeglasses. You're not going to have to pay out of your pocket. You're not going to have to pay premiums. What are you going to have to pay? Yes, you're going to have to pay more in taxes. But at the end of the day, just hypothetically, if I say to you, Bob, that instead of paying $15,000 a year for your family in premiums and out-of-pocket expenses, and I'm asking you to pay $10,000 more in taxes, you're $5,000 for the good. You'll say, thank you very much, Bernie. And I think a lot of people in this country Well, is there will. anything... So what was missing, what was missing in the debate was that explanation. He did not say, hey, establishment toady reporter, if you spend $15,000, if you spend $15,000 here for healthcare costs for you and your family, and your taxes go up by $10,000, well, if that $15,000 goes away, and you have the 10,000 left, you save $5,000. He didn't explain that in the first debate that overall, when comparing the taxes you will pay to the health care savings you will save, you're gonna be saving four to $5,000. That was not in his first answer. Bring a, bring a Karl Rove whiteboard if you must. I mean, Karl Rove is a degenerate, but so, so be it. Bring a whiteboard if people can't understand it, because obviously the moderators understand this they just want to spin it and make propaganda out of it to confuse people. But you're not actually raising taxes on the middle class. And Bernie actually needs to keep making that point. You're already paying more taxes on health care. It's just not called a tax. I mean, I just got a bill in for, for $300 for coinsurance for anesthesia from my back surgery. Is that I don't care if you call it sliced bread. It's money I have to pay. Is it a tax? Is it coinsurance? whatever but finally he you gotta you gotta break it down for people and frankly be a little bit more forceful uh in this case this anchor was not like this reporter was not like adversarial uh but to the moderators i would say during the debate you know rachel or uh who's doing it jake tapper uh you know you got an army of producers here so let me break this down for you it's not complicated you know if you got $10,000 in, in tax increases, but before that, you got $15,000, doing my Bernie impression, you got $15,000 in healthcare costs. Well, if those healthcare costs go away and you're left with paying $10,000 more in taxes, what's the, what's the difference between $15,000 and $10,000? That would be $5,000 in savings. Sounds like a good deal to me. So I thought that was a great answer. Um, also, he's taking it to Biden a little bit stronger. Let's take a look at this part. Everybody in this country has a card 
which allows them to go to any doctor they want, any hospital they want, and which will end up costing us far less than the current dysfunctional system. The key question that we as a people have got to ask ourselves, do we think that we should continue a health care system designed to make huge profits for the insurance companies, drug companies, and others? Or do we have a system which is universal, every man, woman, and child that is in it and is run in a much more cost-effective way? Vice President says he, his words, your program would be too risky, that people would be transition over to Medicare for All and they'd Look, lose coverage. I like Joe, and I hope we will have this debate, you know. But when Joe says something to the effect that Medicare for seniors, what do you say, will end? I mean, that's just an obviously absurd situation. Let's think back for a moment. Let's think back. In 1965, LBJ and the Democratic Congress began Medicare. Today, Medicare is an extremely popular program, far more popular than any private health insurance program. They began that back in 1965, before we had anywhere near the kind of technology we have today. Started out of nowhere. And then people say, somehow or another, with all the technology we have today, all the experience we have with running a Medicare program over the last 50 years, that somehow we can't, over a four-year period, go from 65, which is eligibility right now, down to 55. Bob, do you know how many millions of people who are 60, 62 years of age would give, how do I say this, their left arm, to get into a Medicare program. They're hanging in, they're waiting for Medicare. If we can lower that age from 65 to 55, down to 45, down to 35, and then cover everybody, this is exactly, I think, what the American people want. I thought that was a good answer. I prefer, instead of absurd, maybe just say, well, he's lying, that's a lie. That's Republican talking points that Joe Biden is using. Uh, just here, in full disclosure, I'm just taking this from uh, Bernie Sanders uh, campaigns and email they sent out. But I mean, these are the numbers. Compare the two plans, Bernie on the left, Biden on the right. Obviously Bernie's plan uh, covers everybody. Biden's plan estimates leaves out 10 million people uninsured. I think that's a lower, I think that's a low number as far as 10 million people under, uninsured because how many more people are gonna have expanded Obamacare but still not be able to afford it? <laughs> so you could say, 10 million people totally uninsured, but there's a lot of people with Obamacare that are technically insured that cannot afford it. Uh, obviously, Bernie's plans eliminates co-pays, deductibles, premiums. Uh, Biden's plans, tens of millions of Americans remain underinsured with high co-pays and deductibles, leave too many people at the mercy of insurers. Uh, then you got uh, Biden's plan, uh, basically leaves people at the whim of their employers. So you got 100 million Americans would remain dictated by their employer uh, to keep their insurance. They could lose access to their doctors if they're separated from their jobs, which an estimated 66 million Americans were in the last year, or the employer could change their coverage without their input. As one study found, almost 30% of employers changed coverage last year. Uh, then you have a public option under Biden will be too expensive for those who need it. Biden wants to keep the complicated system of health insurance premium tax credits and means test eligibility for premium free public coverage. Let's ask the people who just barely miss qualifying for Medicaid today how that will work for them. And obviously Biden's plan preserves a broken system. And by the way, why does Joe Biden really want uh, you know, a public option? Why is he saying a public option, which frankly won't be a true public option, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. 
Why is it that he wants a public option? Probably because all the Wall Street banks that are heavily funding Joe Biden are also heavily funded in big pharmaceutical companies, hospitals, and the health for-profit health insurance system. Because could it have anything to do with that? This is never discussed, but the banks, Goldman, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, all of them, hedge funders, uh, lawyers that represent financial institutions, which are some of the biggest donors to Biden, Harris, Buttigieg, they're all invested in the for-profit healthcare system. So you think Joe Biden's going to be, you know, railing for Medicare for all while he has caviar and champagne on, on Park Avenue? Jen, how many emails do we get a week where it says Joe Biden's scheduled for today because we're on the press list? Uh, you know, Joe Biden has a finance, camp, a finance event this evening. Finance event, a.k.a. Figuratively sucking some for money. Excuse my French. This is why he does not support Medicare for all. And, you know... Biden takes every opportunity to cite his BFF, Barack Obama, President Obama. Obviously, he's doing that to win the black vote. I'm sorry, but this is politics. He wants to wrap himself so tightly around President Obama that Obama can barely breathe. And Obama has not endorsed him, mind you. But, oh, he, Joe Biden mentions Obama as much as uh, Donald Trump tweets racist things. A lot. So... Obama himself, a couple months ago at a speech, said, well, Medicare for all is a good deal, good idea. And if Joe Biden has to go the lengths of lying and saying, oh, well, you know, it's millions of people are going to be without health care in the transition. Bernie Sanders, the transition is over four years. Nobody's going to be without health care. Obamacare is not going to be dissolved until this system is fully in place. Bernie Sanders has never said, I'm going to snap my fingers and we're going to have Medicare for all. That's not realistic. It's a huge change in the health system. And to conclude, I wish Bernie Sanders would start talking like this on the campaign trail. Here's uh, one more part that I enjoyed. Let's stick with that race point you just brought up. In 1974, you said that busing policies were well-meaning in theory, but sometimes result in, quote, racial hostility. What else did I say in that? Tell me. No, you got it there. Read, read, read the whole quote. I don't have the whole quote. The whole quote is the federal government doesn't give a shit about African Americans. Oh, that is true. That's country. why I didn't include it. All right. Okay. <laughs> and my point was now. that I don't think anybody thinks that busing is the solution. What is the solution? What I meant by that quote is that we need to enforce fair housing legislation. I think everybody, whether you're black or you're white, you want your kids to go to a great community school, not to be bused an hour away. Preach, Brother Bernie, preach. I mean, that's the truth. And I don't think it's that much different from the 1970s to 2019. I don't think I've ever heard Bernie curse publicly. So, fantastic. I wish he would say that more. Because I don't hear anything from Joe Biden that's going to be a game changer for black people. Same thing with Kamala Harris. Because they are, these plans by Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, they're all tinkering around the edges. They're all not addressing the fundamental flaws in this, the structural flaws in our economy, the structural flaws in our government. 
And that is because our country is basically a legalized auction and our politicians are sold to the low, to the highest bidder. That's the truth. And I wish Bernie Sanders would start saying on the campaign trail, you know, let's, let's, let's be honest here. These candidates don't give a shit. Look at, follow their money, follow the money. Because by the way, these Wall Street banks that are hoarding money to Buttigieg and Harris and uh, Biden, Cory Booker, Beto O'Rourke, who seems to be falling down the bar that he stood on. Not a very impressive uh, fundraising. I think he raised $2 million. He'll probably have to drop out by the fall, I would guess, maybe sooner. Um, I tweeted out yesterday that you know Beto should stand on a, a tree stump and uh, endorse Bernie Sanders. But anyway, why is it? Why is it that all these Wall Street people are giving to them? The same Wall Street people that have been doing predatory lend- lending and, and targeting uh, lower, uh, poor communities and black communities for you know crappy, crappy loans that no human being, white or black, would understand the terms, and basically dropping you know bombs in the form of subprime mortgage mortgages on unsuspecting uh, black people. The financial crash disproportionately harmed black Americans more than white Americans. But Kamala Harris has no problem having fundraisers with the managing director of Citigroup at the top of her Fifth Avenue Manhattan apartment. Joe Biden has zero problem hobnobbing with Comcast lobbyists, uh, uh, Wall Street executives, hedge funders, Silicon Valley, you name it. He'll take their money. They say jump, how high? Warren, as far as we know, Warren is not doing these fundraisers, but she has said publicly, I'm not unilaterally disarming if I become the nominee. The general election is a different beast. Well, if you're already willing to make rationalizations, well, I could, we've got to make an exception for the general election. Well, what does that say about when you're president? Are you going to make rationalizations then too? And compromise, you know, the core convictions that money is the root of all evil and money uh, is a toxic force in politics and therefore you're not going to take it from the very interests trying to buy you off. 